You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, uh, I got a couple of things to tell you. One of them is I'm in a good mood. I'm feeling good today. And part of the reason I'm feeling good is because our old friends at Squarespace are sponsoring the long-form podcast once again. Squarespace, of course, is the best way to turn your great idea into a reality. They make it easier than ever to launch your passion project. And uh, writers, I know you're listening to this show. Squarespace will let you build a beautiful portfolio for your work and also make it super easy for editors to find you, to contact you. They've got beautiful templates and the ability to customize just about anything so you can easily make a beautiful website all by yourself. If you get stuck, you won't. But if you do, Squarespace's 24-7 award-winning customer support is there to help. Go to squarespace.com longform. That's squarespace.com longform for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code longform. You'll get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Thank you, Squarespace. Here's the show. Hello and welcome to Longform Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I'm here with Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Hi, Aaron. Hey, you guys. This week on the show, we got Josh Levine. He is the national editor of Slate. Has been at Slate forever. Has been at, like at Slate across multiple periods of the internet. Yeah, and nobody survives with that kind of institutional knowledge at a place these days. It's incredible. Yeah, he he knows where uh, all of the Slate murder victims are buried. <laughs> yeah, yes, he's like lived through uh, entirely different versions of Slate. Um, I had a good excuse to have him on because he has a book called The Queen Out, which is uh, adapted from a story he did for Slate about America's quote-unquote first welfare queen, uh, Linda Taylor. Um, this is a story that takes place in the 70s. She also turned out to be a con artist, a kidnapper, and possibly even a murderer. So, Where uh, the literal bodies are buried. Exactly. Uh, and uh, there is a, a companion podcast uh, that they're putting out. So. I'm excited for this one. If you uh, are looking for something else to read this summer, you should go to readthissummer.com. It's a uh, website built by our friends at MailChimp. Every year, uh, they pick someone who curates a whole track of authors, people who published books this year. Uh, and this year, it's Jenna Wortham. She picked a bunch of her favorite authors, and they're all going to be at the Decatur Book Festival in September. Who else is going to be at the Decatur Book Festival? I, myself, will be Ever at the Decatur Alf. Book Festival. 
And I'll be doing some onstage stuff. Uh, so come on out. I'm doing slang, two separate events. Slang and his own product. Pick that <laughs> up. The mastermind. Any excuse to go to Atlanta. That's I'm just my... picturing you like with a duffel bag full of your own book just showing up. <laughs> selling, selling, selling. <laughs> Always be selling. You know me, Aaron. <laughs> So go check it out, readthissummer.com. Thanks to MailChimp for their support. Now here's Aaron with Josh Levine. Welcome, uh, Josh Levine. Thank you for having me. Uh, You are the national editor of Slate, and you are also, I would have to believe, one of Slate's most longtime employees. Yes, Dahlia Lithwick has me beat, Will Salatan, June Thomas. I think I'm at number four. That's more people than I expected. I, I would have actually predicted uh, you would be uh, the champion. So you started working at Slate in 2003? That is correct. Tell me what led you there and like what kind of a internet to work on Slate in 2003 <laughs> was. <laughs> um, so I was at the Washington City Paper in 2002. That was my first job in journalism, and it was an amazing introduction to journalism. I knew absolutely nothing about the field when I started, and so I kind of didn't understand at the time what an amazing place I had lucked into. My mentor there really was Tom Skoka. He was the number two editor, and he introduced me to Brian Curtis, who's now at The Ringer, who is then Slate's sports editor, among other things. And I started freelancing sports articles for Slate when I was still at the city paper. And that was kind of my entree. And then I got an editorial assistant gig in 2003. And they have not uh, been able to get rid of me. Uh, as As far as what the internet was like then, I mean, one of the things that I did, one of my first tasks at Slate was being one of the writers of the In Other Magazines column. Are you, oh, I'm, are you I familiar did not, with that? Not familiar with that. Oh, man. So Today's Papers was an aggregation thing that Slate did, early internet aggregation. And I administered that column. So I like, you know, kept track of who the freelancers were that were writing it on the weekends. And that was the column in which Slate would tell you what was in the newspaper that day um i guess was, they still they still do that for some like tabloid like there's i think actually maybe grantland or the ringer used to run like a tabloid roundup and i kind of appreciate it as a person who's never going to pay like seven dollars for a tabloid we did that too we did the tabloid thing oh, okay also, so we, you were pioneers in all of these uh yeah, aggregation yeah, yeah. verticals but the, interesting but the, in other magazines column the the thinking there was let's get our 23 year olds to read the Times Mag, New Yorker, Atlantic, Weekly Standard, et cetera, et cetera, and pronounce, you know, these are the the magazine stories this week that are good. These are the ones that are bad and why. Like it was kind of aggregation slash media criticism. So I would walk over to the AEI building, American Enterprise Institute, go up in the elevator. You know, sometimes Newt Gingrich was in the elevator, which was exciting. Go into the Weekly Standard office, get copies of the magazine and bring them back to Slate. That was a fun diversion every now and again. But aggregation was like a bigger thing, especially for junior people back then. And the pace was way slower, I would say. We were kind of less reactive 
to the news or beholden to the news cycle. But, you know, Slate's always been a kind of an opinion and analysis shop that hasn't changed. So it's just kind of faster now (laughs) than it was then. Starting out like doing sports writing kind of stuff on the internet then, like what was the template for what you would do writing about sports online in 2003? Trying to think back of what some of my earlier stories were. There was one in praise of defensive linemen running back interceptions for touchdowns as like the ultimate sports moment and experience. That was an early piece I did. I did one about little league bullies, meaning like the kids that go through puberty and the ones that are six feet tall when they're 12 and how they always dominate the Little League World Series. Got a a substantial amount of hate mail for that one. That was a different thing back then is you would actually get hate mail. Uh, I don't get that much email anymore. It's mostly hate tweets. But, you know, with Twitter not existing, people needed that outlet to send you negative feedback. Um, But you know, as the sports editor, when I became the sports editor at Slate, kind of looking at sports through a statistical lens, a sabermetric lens, however you want to put it, was, if not unheard of, not particularly common. And so that was a lot of the niche that we filled. Um, And then, you know, as that became kind of a more popular mode, you know, the prevalence of that or importance of that to our coverage diminished a little bit. But, you know, that's kind of been a recurring thing at Slate, actually, is that there are more and more sites doing similar stuff to what we do every year. And so trying to find a way to differentiate ourselves. You know, sometimes people think that, you know, the ringer invented aggregating the tablets. And and, and then what are you going to do? You got to come up with something different. Yeah, I mean, there's a way in which, uh, please don't take this the wrong way, Slate is something like legacy internet media. For um, sure. It's old enough. It, it's sort of the way where, I, like, when you've been doing something for 20-ish years, that is of, like, a, a different generation. So how do you think about, like, defining it as a product um, in relation to there being... 10 times as many sites in the same lane as there were in 2003, if not 100 times more. Um, So when Slate was started in 1996, Google didn't exist. Like, I think that it's not crazy to tell people, like, social, the social web and Facebook and Twitter didn't exist. But the fact that Google didn't exist is really bizarre to imagine an internet that, you know, was a thing that people used. I... I recall being on the internet around that time without Google. And so, you know, our old content management system, we just had, not me personally, but uh, our dev team has had to like, all right, let's uh, figure out how to do this thing where you put in videos into the article. And then, you know, how do you, uh, you know, integrate all of this stuff that we now see as central to um, the way the web operates and functions and like it's always been there. I should be clear, the CMS they're on now uh, has all that stuff natively. (laughs) This was like a couple of generations ago. But, you know, I think the way that Slate has remained Slate and remained distinctive, it's pretty banal to say, but also true is just the voices 
that we have. Like Dahlia Lithwick, who is one of the people that predated me, she pioneered the form of covering the Supreme Court in the way she covers it, like not looking at it as this august institution that you have to write about in this totally high-minded way. And as the world changes, I think that mode and the way that she is able to to capture that and and write that is it's still operative. And I think just finding people who can look at the world in a distinctive way that's like still the game for anybody. Um, and that's you know what we're always trying to do. What has that meant for you personally, like in your own writing? Um, what do you feel like your evolution from, you know, signing on as a uh, sports blogger um, to doing? I mean, you, you've published enough things on uh, on Slate that I like I could not page back through the entire thing. But um, a lot of them are yeah. podcast pages where oh, people that's are fair. just be mad that they click on it and they're like, where is the transcript? I'm going to send you an <laughs> An angry yeah. note. I mean, you would find the... out that the cost of transcribing like every back episode of Slate was like ten million dollars. <laughs> yeah, if any billionaire wants to take on that that project, I'm, I mean, I think actually eventually AI will catch up and there will be perfect transcripts of all this stuff. But to actually buy them now is not cheap. Yeah, if you once we do that, if they could just like not hit the 2009 episodes of Hang Up and Listen when I was a <laughs> really really crappy podcast host at that point. Start ditto, with the... <laughs> ditto the early uh, long-form podcast episodes. Don't want those. Although you did remind me, there's a great moment in, in one of the very first episodes where uh, Paul Ford describes um, digitizing the Harper's archive by hand using a scanner that uh, <laughs> can give people an idea of uh, what kinds of wars the first uh, internet generation of publishers had to fight. Digitizing by hand is a great phrase. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, one of the ways in which... It's changed for me is podcasting. Um, Slate didn't do podcasts when I started. We were one of the earliest places to really take it on as a vast editorial project and a part of our mission. I started doing the sports podcast, um, Hang Up and Listen, in 09. Have been doing it consistently, you know, ever since the last 10 years. And then I was editing Leon Nafok, editing his print stuff when we put him on an untitled Watergate podcast project and later acquired a title, Slow Burn. And I kind of went with him to that. Um, was one of the p- editorial people on that show, working with him on, on the scripts. And that has been fun and exciting and different for me in the last couple years is like moving more into narrative audio stuff. Yeah, I mean, that's actually kind of an interesting bridge to The Queen, which is your uh, newish book. When did the book come out? May 21st. New. May tw- new. Not even newish. New. <laughs> um, which is adapted or uh, expanded from an article you wrote in 2013 for Slate, which is called The Welfare Queen. And there is also a podcast. So moving into this like historical podcast reporting realm where did this this story about linda taylor start for you so i mentioned skoka earlier as the guy who helped me get the job at slate tom in 2012 was blogging for slate and i was editing him he sent me a link to a story about taylor 
something that had been published in Jet Magazine and was digitized by Google Books. And it had like the real broadest outlines of the Taylor story as I would come to understand it, that she was nicknamed the welfare queen, that she was considered or alleged to be the biggest welfare cheat of all time. She drove a Cadillac, had fur coats. And I was born in 1980. This stuff was you know, going on in the mid-70s. I was not familiar with Linda Taylor as a person. And it was not only fascinating to me that this person existed and that the welfare queen trope and phrase, which I was familiar with, that it was associated with this particular person. I was also interested in the fact that I had known that and that she had not just been forgotten, but had really been disappeared from history. If you look just a couple years after her very brief period of infamy, there were people writing in super reputable publications like Ronald Reagan's Welfare Queen, because Reagan talked about her on the campaign trail. Ronald Reagan invented this from whole cloth. This woman never existed. Um, and so I wanted to, A, like find out everything I could about this specific person, but also dig into how someone who was so well-known and was this character who was written about a ton could just be totally written out of history. That was fascinating to me. Hey, it's Max. I want to put uh, Josh and Aaron on hold for just a second so I can tell you about a sponsor that's been with us for years. It's Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to finally get that website that you have been meaning to build up on the internet. Here's the deal. You don't need to know a lick of code. You don't need to know really even how websites work. All you need to know is what you want to do and how you want it to look, and Squarespace makes it incredibly easy to do just that. It's all drag and drop. Everything's customized for mobile. You never need to patch or upgrade. It all just works with Squarespace, and it'll work for you. Whether you need a uh, portfolio for your writing, whether you got some stuff you want to sell, maybe you're making t-shirts. You want to make a t-shirt store. Do it with Squarespace. They got all these e-commerce tools. They got all the analytics, all the analytics you could ever want. You'll know exactly who's coming to your website, why they're coming, how long they're coming for, what they ate for breakfast, whatever. You're going to know what you need to know, and uh, you're going to be able to do what you need to do with Squarespace. If you hit a snag, you won't, but if you do, they got 24-7 customer support. It's award-winning. They're great at it. So here's the thing. If you got something you've been meaning to put on the internet, uh, do it with Squarespace because it's so easy. That's the way to do it. It's the only way to do it. Head to squarespace.com slash longform. You'll get a free trial, and when you're ready to launch... Use the offer code LONGFORM. You'll save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's the other thing. They make it super easy to buy domains. So you can just uh, have the website you want at the URL you want with Squarespace. That's squarespace.com slash LONGFORM. Offer code LONGFORM. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show. And let's get back to Josh and Aaron. Looking back, like I had read the story in 2013, then I read the book, and I looked back this morning at the story. The amount of research you were able to do, even for the article form of the book, uh, involved finding kids of hers, finding kids that probably were not hers and were abducted by her, people who had 
uh, known her at various stages of her life. Like, I guess my question is like, like, where do you start on something like this? Like, what is the epicenter and how do you strategize your research when the story is so sprawling that um, for people listening, I would say that welfare fraud is maybe amongst her most benign crimes. Yeah, that's right. And this was a process of triangulating or quadrangulating uh, between secondary source material, documents, and people that knew her. So the first step was finding whatever there was in news databases. And there actually was a decent amount of stuff in Nexus, ProQuest, wherever, from this very specific period of time. She's arrested for welfare fraud, charged with it in 1974, and that becomes a story. She goes to prison in 1978. That's a story. And there's nothing really easy to find about her before then or after that. But in that period, there's a bunch of stuff in the Chicago Tribune and the Chicago Defender in The Wires. And so that provided me with names of detectives, um, names of prosecutor, name of defense attorney. And I was able to find a lot of those people and, and talk to them, and they gave me more leads. Then documents, I was able to get the court files from her welfare fraud case. And in that court file, in one of them, there was a note in there. She was known as Linda Taylor at this time, but she was also known as somebody who had a bunch of other identities. There was a note in there that said Linda Springer, handwritten, Live Oak, Florida. And I was like, well, it's Linda something. That's probably her. I didn't know that she had been in Florida. And just that little note, um, and I don't know who put it in there or why, allowed me to track her eventually to where she ended up after she got out of prison to find relatives. And that kind of blew the whole thing up and allowed me to tell the story in a comprehensive way. It started with that little note. How long were you working on that original piece? About a year, but it wasn't like I was working on it 24-7 yeah. during that year. You know, my main job at Slate was at that time, you know, I was editing sports stuff. I think I was editing our tech coverage at that time. I was doing the podcast. And so I would take some time off here and there to work on it exclusively, but a lot of it was, there was some hurry up and wait to it. And one thing that David Plotz, who was then the editor of Slate and who supported all of this work that went into this, this story, one thing he told me is we can't run this unless we know what happened to her because nobody knew. None of the people that I was originally able to track down knew. There was no media coverage of her after she went to prison. And so it took me about eight or 10 months to figure out that she had died, figure out when that had happened and kind of have that conclusion to the story. And you would have just gambled those eight or 10 months. And if, you know, the trail dried up and there's no trace of her, you wouldn't have felt like you could publish this. That's what he said. I probably would have argued <laughs> with him at a certain point. I mean, I think... It's a pretty important beat, particularly in the book, I would say. It would have been hard to tie that story up. I mean, particularly because she is 
still at it close to the end after yeah, she, she did not go to prison. Florida to retire. She no. uh, she got down to business when she was there. I think that it's not just knowing literally she died on such and such a date. It's kind of a signifier. Like mm-hmm. if you don't know what happened to her at the end of her life, that's kind of an indication that you don't really have the story nailed or locked down. And so I think there's there's good reason to say if you don't know that stuff, then you probably don't have enough to publish. Although Josh circa 2013 might have argued differently. (laughs) (laughs) In thinking about like what you needed to tell this story, there's obviously a, a massive factual load of names, places, arrests, um, all the stuff that's in the files. But then there feel like there are these larger questions about who this person was, what motivated them. What were the biggest mysteries for you that you felt like you needed to answer beyond just finding documents that sort of traced her movements? A really big thing for me was, so we've already talked a little bit about what became of her after she went on trial. I think it was more important to me in terms of understanding who this person was, you know, the the before stuff, before she got arrested and became a public figure. Where did this person come from? What were the life experiences that shaped her? You know, the book opens with the detective knocking on her door. She reports this phony burglary, and that's when he kind of first gets on her case and everything unravels from there. But like, who was she before the detective knocked on that that door? How did she get into that apartment? How did she become the person that she became? And you asked somewhat about motivation. That's a thing that remained elusive to me for really the whole time I was working on this. And it was something that I really wrestled with because I felt like the fundamental mistake that journalists made in covering her story in the mid-1970s was being unwilling to admit what they didn't know about her yeah, and being definitive about things that shouldn't have been definitive. And so the book, there's implicit and explicit media criticism throughout this book. And so I didn't want to be on my high horse talking about how all these folks got it wrong and then, you know, pop in there and be doing, you know, dime store psychoanalysis of this person whose behavior was often super inscrutable. And so it's this process of trying to figure out what are the events and life experiences that were key to her, were crucial to understanding her, but also not trying to get inside her head when, you know, I just have no possible understanding of what was going on in there. 
people had previously believed that Linda Taylor's motivation for keeping all of this rotating cast of kids around her was that it was part of a way to get more government benefits. But I feel like you document pretty definitively that it seems like it extended beyond that and may have involved like child buying and selling. But even in the case of like the kids that you've tracked down who were at one point in her care, they aren't really that knowledgeable about exactly what she was up to. How did you regard that mystery and what did you find as you sort of pushed deeper into it? Yeah, I mean, there are a couple of pages in the book where I own up to my lack of a definitive understanding of what was going on there and lay out some possible theories. Her son, contemporaneously to all of this, told one of the detectives that I interviewed uh, that she was buying and selling children. So that was what he claimed. The stuff about using children to substantiate welfare claims never made any sense to me. She would invent fake children to um, pad her you know, benefit levels. And this was one of the ways in which she got caught. She put on one of these forms that she had twins and triplets that were born five months apart. And a caseworker thought that that was biologically impossible. That raised a red flag. And so if you're totally willing to invent children, then why go to the trouble of you know kidnapping them in order to get more welfare money. And it's not like you're required to bring all of your children to the welfare office when you're applying anyway. And that also feeds into this whole myth, the kind of pernicious, inaccurate welfare queen stereotype, this idea that welfare recipients are having children to get more welfare money, which just that never made sense for anyone. Just the math doesn't work out. Well, additionally, as you dig deeper into her life, it's not like she's behaving in a rational manner to end up with the most money. And like plots like literally stealing a, a child potentially from a hospital and certainly exchanging children, they have like a um, sort of pathological compulsive element to them. Yeah, I mean, definitely compulsive behavior. That's how it parsed to me as well. And she wasn't that great at doing crimes. She got away with a lot of stuff from a certain perspective, but it's not like she was amazing at avoiding getting caught. She just wasn't punished very frequently. So she would get arrested. She would sometimes get charged, but she wouldn't get sent to prison. Um, Sometimes she wouldn't be charged at all. She would be suspected of doing things, but there was an idea, you know, that notion that there wasn't enough evidence to to win a conviction so things were dropped but she was just unwilling or unable to be deterred she would not own up to having done anything wrong ever she would do the same thing over and over again until she was caught or do the same thing over and over again even after she was caught And as you said, I could find no evidence that she was 
trying to accumulate money in order to, you know, retire. There was no like wealth accumulation process here. She, I don't think, really had savings. I don't have any uh, belief or understanding that she did. What inspires you to do a podcast along with the book? And where does the podcast sort of uh, veer away from the book in your mind or represent the story differently? Wanted to do the podcast. One reason is to promote the book, to get it to a different audience. Um, but I think it was also really interesting and exciting to be able to have the voices of the people who I talked to tell this story. And, you know, it's something that when I was writing the book, I did not want to be a character in it. I didn't want it to be about my journey <laughs> uh, of how I figured this all this stuff out and how I tracked her down. Um, the story is told from other people's perspectives, and yet they're still like filtered through my th- through my perspective ultimately. And so, in the podcast, you hear from her lawyer, who's great. Um, he's got an amazing voice and his perspective on her is really crucial, I think, to understanding her. He defended her in the 70s. He told her not to wear fur coats to trial. She refused. Um, And his analysis of why that was, I think, is really interesting. The last episode of the podcast is stories of two women who encountered Taylor at two different times in her life, one in the 50s and one in the 70s and 80s. And hearing them tell their stories, you kind of feel the influence and effect that she had on people's lives in a way that I wouldn't necessarily be able to get across with my own narration. Um, I thought their accounts were like very powerful. And so that's what I was going for. On a practical level, like, did that involve having to go back? And tape people you had already interviewed, or was you basically doing the like book interviews with an eye towards the podcast as it was happening? Would have been nice <laughs> uh, if I had done I that. As- I assumed it was the um, more labor intensive way, but uh, then I thought maybe he was a uh, had masterminded this all in 2013 when uh, no one was really doing podcasts <laughs> of this kind. Hell no! So I went back and interviewed folks that. I had talked to for the book and they were in studios and we just did original stuff for the podcast. I also talked to people that I had not interviewed for the book for a handful of the shows. So on the one hand, it would have been a reduction in uh, labor to do them simultaneously. On the other, I was talking to folks that knew me and trusted me from the reporting process, people I had talked to a number of times over a number of years. And so I think the accumulation of that trust and experience helped in doing the interviews for the podcast. We'd kind of gone on this like long, through this long process together, and this was the culmination of it. One thing that was really interesting to me, though, doing this reporting is that except for her kids, Nobody that I talked to, and I talked to a lot of different people, knew her for more than 
a couple years max because she would just blow into people's lives, destroy everything, and then leave, and nobody would know where she went to. And so there would be this exchange of information where uh, you know they would tell me, this is what I knew of Linda Taylor or Connie Harbaugh or whatever her name was at the time. And then they would ask me, so what happened after? What happened before? So I felt like I was actually, instead of being totally vampiric and just sucking people dry for everything they knew, I was actually helping people understand, you know, I never really knew where she came from or where she went to. So it was nice to be able to feel like I was doing something for people. You've... um You've written this, you worked on the scripts for uh, both seasons of Slow Burn, or I guess both seasons are out, season three coming soon, as I understand. Um, What have you learned about sort of the sequence of beats necessary to put together a historical tale of this kind? Like in the case of The Queen, you're telling a story that no one knows anything about beforehand. And in the case of Slow Burn, um, and we've had Leon on and talked to him about this as well, you're telling a story that people think they know and basically trying to tell them a lot of stuff that they don't know. In fact, almost things are almost like ruled out if they already know them. Yeah, I was working on Slow Burn, the podcast, while I was finishing up the book before I had started the the Queen podcast. But it was really interesting to be working in those two modes at the same time because, like you said, they are two really different types of stories. And there is a kind of hand-holding that you need to do in podcasting no matter what kind of story you're telling, whether it's one that the audience is familiar with or one that folks have no clue who any of the people are. And I think one of the strengths of what Leon did with Slow Burn with both seasons is making a thing that people might have thought was familiar like feel strange and reminding people just in general in life that you don't really know as much as you think you know. And I think that carries over into any kind of of storytelling. Like with the Watergate season of Slow Burn, like people know who Richard Nixon is, but you're not going to go wrong with explaining literally anything else, whether it's who this minor forgotten character is from history or, you know, the fact that, you know, this is what happened during the hearings that were, were televised. And so having that experience in my back pocket, I think, was useful in figuring out how to narrativize a thing that nobody really knew about because uh, I'm not sure, I guess, how different it is or if you're using different kind of muscles once you figure out that like even something like Watergate or the Clinton impeachment it doesn't hurt to go over stuff that might be seen as, you know, canon. There's a level to the fun in those kind of shows being the weird details, sometimes more so than the like sweeping narratives. Like I really enjoyed the Watergate series just because like there's so many like weird, it's almost like an anthology show of weird subplots. And that's a quality in the queen also. Like you have um, 
I'm going to forget his name. I think Lawrence, who uh, runs the um, policymaker racket. Which yeah, is, Lawrence Wakefield, the policy the, king. Yeah. So is the policy racket the same as the numbers racket or are they different? Yeah, policy and numbers, like some people will tell you, are slightly different, but they're basically local underground neighborhood lotteries that were popular in particularly black communities in the U.S. in the first half of the 20th century. And so this was a guy who got rich by running an underground lottery in the south side of Chicago. And I really enjoyed that story. I enjoyed learning a little bit like about how they like fished numbers out of a drum or something. Yeah. Um, but I imagine that as you barrel into a story like this, there's just so many details. There's so many possible um, diversions just off the road. Um, how do you filter that and say this belongs in the book versus that's a crazy story I found in this archive, but it's really only tangentially related to this one? So the Wakefield story was super important to understanding who she was. She represented herself as this man's daughter, and there ended up being this airship hearing where her biological relatives came from the Deep South and testified against her. And by her accounts and by her children's accounts, this was one of the defining moments of her life, one that kind of made her snap in certain ways and made her make choices that defined the next period in her life. And it also helped me unlock um, who she was as a child and what that experience was like for her and how her uh, background kind of changed and influenced everything uh, in her life. And so that was something that I knew I needed to include. And so going a little bit along on Wakefield himself and on the policy racket and on what that scene was like and kind of imagining her in it, like I felt like I had license to really take that tangent. Then there were other cases. So there was this woman in Louisiana named Goldie, who her son Johnny told me I used to, you know, go and spend time with Goldie in Louisiana. And that was I was told that this was my uh, grandmother, this woman. And so I spent forever trying to figure out who this woman was, who is who is a woman named Goldie in Louisiana, who Johnny could have possibly been staying with. I finally tracked down this this person. I find some of her relatives. I find that this woman, Goldie, was married like 10 times, killed one of her husbands. I figured out the story of actually how Linda Taylor was connected to her, how they found each other. And it's like a paragraph in the book because it doesn't, or I couldn't figure out a way to make it kind of foundational narrative piece in the story. This was just like another random person that she sent her kid off to stay with for months at a time. And it is a truly insane story, the story of Goldie. And it's just really not in the book. <laughs> you um, you covered the R. Kelly trial in 2008 uh, for Slate. What has it been like uh, watching the developments of the last couple of years? It's been weird. So at the time that I went to cover the trial, 
it was seen as a joke kind of. Yeah. Not by everyone, but it was seen as funny. And if you go back and read my coverage, I'm proud of it in a lot of ways. I'm proud that we um, paid attention to that trial. I was very you know, conscious of surfacing all of the allegations against him that folks like Jim Dirigatis had um, reported on for years. And I think, you know, hopefully helped bring attention to uh, the crimes that Kelly had committed. But in covering the trial, I, you know, made a lot of jokes and it was a really bizarre scene with a lot of really crazy characters and lawyers saying like really weird stuff, like saying that they had used, um, you know, in the video of R. Kelly that showed him, you know, raping this young girl, you know, what I believe, that's what I believe it, it showed. You know, Kelly's lawyer is talking about how they had used the same technology that they used in the Wayans Brothers movie Little Man to fabricate this video. It's like absurd and ridiculous and you kind of can't help but, you know, note how absurd and ridiculous it is. And yet I feel like maybe it tilted a little bit too far towards the ridiculousness rather than the seriousness of what the allegations were. And I think I would probably write about it differently today, even though I am, as I said, proud of of a lot of it. I think his uh, attorney, uh, like today, the the attorney in that case is like uh, now like uh, terminally ill and is just talking. Yeah, Ed Jensen um, yeah. was one of the attorneys. There was a dream team of Chicago lawyers, and there's an intersection with the Linda Taylor story. Um, Eugene Pincham, who defended Taylor in the '70s, who I discuss very prominently in the book very well-known and renowned Chicago defense attorney, civil rights attorney, was on the R. Kelly defense team, actually. Um, But he died before the case went to trial. I didn't know that at the time. This was something that I discovered kind of serendipitously later. But R. Kelly's attorneys were just this incredibly interesting group of folks um, who part of their... um, strategy was to be bombastic and to went over the the jury by loudly proclaiming things about the Wayans brothers and and little man and just being kind of outrageous and it was it was amazing to watch it was an amazing spectacle and i had never seen anything like that before and the thing you know for folks who haven't covered a prominent trial before. Um, This wasn't on television. There actually weren't that many national media outlets that were there. There were a lot of Chicago outlets that were, but a woman named Jennifer Vineyard covered it for MTV News. Ted McClelland covered it for Blender, and I was there for, for Slate. I mean, I might be forgetting somebody, but there weren't that many other people there. And if you couldn't watch it on on television, like we were really the eyes and ears for the public for this case. And that is really rare to find something like like that that has so much 
interest, that people are really desperate to know what's going on, and that you are invested with this task of describing it. And if people don't read your stuff, they're not going to know what happened. So you've done um, very up-to-the-minute sports stuff. You've now dedicated uh, more than five years to the story of Linda Taylor. What do you want to do from here? Um, where does this all leave you going forward as a writer? Bereft. <laughs> Tired. Yeah. I want to do more stuff in narrative podcasting. I am working on Slow Burn Season 3 with Joel Anderson, who's an amazing talent. He's going to do um, the Biggie and Tupac murders for us, which is going to be really fantastic. Uh, I can't wait for people to listen to it. Um, but I also want to do my own narrative podcast stuff, do reporting and do the stories in audio. I'm excited about that. I do not think I want to jump into doing another book. I would be happy to find a story at some point in the future that I would want to work on for five years. But um, at the moment, that feels crazy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much for this interview, Josh. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. Hey, thanks for listening. Thanks to all of the listeners. Uh, thanks also to our editor, Janelle Piper. Thanks to our intern, Louisa Garbowit. I'm Aaron Lammer. My co-hosts are Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky. We are brought to you by people like MailChimp and Pit Writers at the University of Pittsburgh. They make the show possible. You can always send us an email, podcast at longform.org. We love to get them. See you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.